morning, and we're in need of your uh, strength and your guidance. We're in need of um, the help to focus and put our hearts and minds on the truth of your word. So many times the cares of this world seems to distract us, and we pray that you would help us this morning to rightly divide your word, give us the physical strength and uh, the mental alertness, and then above all, may we have a heart that is yielded. And uh, Lord, help us to do all that you would have us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 12 this morning. Psalm 12, another fairly short psalm. Psalm 12, just eight verses long, fairly brief. And uh, But don't, don't let that fool you. I can make it pretty long-winded if we need to. I'm just kidding. I, I try not to be long-winded just for the sake of being long-winded. But there are sometimes there are so many truths packed into some things that it just takes a little bit to unpack them and develop them uh, from Scripture. This psalm has a lot in it for a small psalm. Uh, it's got an awful lot in it that is a tremendous uh, encouragement, I think, or it will be an encouragement to you. Let's go ahead and read all eight verses together. Verse number one, the psalmist begins by saying, Help, Lord. Well, that's a great statement, isn't it? Probably one of the greatest prayers that we can pray are those two words. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a doubled heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, With our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor is the sighing of the needy. Now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. There's a tone of, uh, somebody wrote it this way. I was reading a, a couple of different uh, people that wrote some comments on this, and I wish I could remember which one it was. I didn't write who it was down, but I had it in my notes here. And uh, they said this, that this psalm takes the, the, the tone of complaining faith. Isn't that interesting? It takes the tone of complaining faith. And I thought of that, and I thought, you know, how often does that hold true in our lives? We come to God with complaint, and yet on the other hand, we say that we trust Him, that we have faith in Him. And it's not that, that we're lacking faith when we bring complaints to Him. I think God tells us to cast all of our care upon Him, for He cares for us. And so the idea is that uh, there's going to be some concern. There's going to be some heaviness of heart. And, uh, and He talks about this idea of, uh, of complaining to God or bringing the, the problem to Him, but doing it with some faith. And they almost seem to be uh, contradictory terms when you say complaining faith. But yet that seems to be kind of the gist of what this psalm is, is the psalmist uh, once again uh, brings a complaint to the Lord. And he's concerned. He's very concerned. In fact, he's so concerned that he begins the psalm with two words, crying out, and probably one of the simplest prayers, but probably one of the most powerful prayers, as he says, Help, Lord. When you cry out, Help, Lord, what you're saying by that is, the circumstances that I'm praying to you about are so great 
that if I do not have your help, Lord, I will not get through this matter. And so he, he brings something into focus right at the very beginning. And uh, he, he talks about the, the idea of needing God's help. And this is the expression of faith. And yet it's also a cry asking him to help. And uh, this psalm can be broken down into uh, four major sections. I'm sorry, three major sections with two kind of inserted verses. The three major sections are, first of all, verses 1 and 2. We see David's complaint to the Lord, uh, the thing that he's concerned about. In uh, verses 3 and 4, uh, David denounces those that are oppressing him, those that are the ungodly. And in verse number 5, it switches uh, who the speaker is. Up until now, it's been David. Verse number 5, God begins to speak. And uh, we find that God uh, talks about the coming wrath that he's going to bring against those that were ungodly. And then back in verses 6 and 7, we find the psalmist once again speaking. And uh, it's, a, it's a joyful song. It's a, a shout of faith and victory in the faithfulness of God and his care for his people. And then verse number 8 again stands alone kind of by itself. As David then defines at the very end of the psalm the root cause for the whole problem. And we're going to look at that a little more closely here in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to start in verse number 1. The idea that he begins with uh, help, Lord. And help is, uh, when you cry out help, Lord, that entails so much, doesn't it? Uh, because it, it, it talks about, it gives the idea of God bringing deliverance. Uh, it talks about God uh, bringing uh, salvation to us. He's uh, defending us in time of, uh, of oppression, somebody uh, coming against us, um, preserving us. All of these things can be rolled into that one little prayer, help, Lord. And uh, the psalmist understands that these present conditions that he's getting ready to express to the Lord are of such great consequence that it's going to take God to remedy the situation. In fact, David considers what he's getting ready to share here in verses 1 and 2. David considers these things to be of, of terrible danger. Terrible danger. Extreme even, if you would, danger to God's people. We're going to see that as we go down through the psalm, just how strongly David feels about the danger that this is. Now, the problem is this. As he cries out, help, Lord, in verse 1, the problem is... Uh, and again, you have to think of this being from David's perception. So David feels like in the day that he's living in his present time that the godly man had ceased. Now, if you'll remember back, there uh, was a time where Elijah felt the same way, didn't he? He said, I alone am left to, to stand for you, Lord. And God had to remind him that there were uh, several hundred prophets that had not bowed their knee to Baal and that God always has a remnant. But sometimes uh, when we're put... Uh, we put through the fire when we are going through the oppression. It seems like we're the only one that's that's standing there. And David feels like the godly man had ceased from their generation. You notice he also says this: for the faithful fail from the from among the children of men. Can I tell you this? And I, I love this statement: the decline of godly men is always a good reason to be praying. I understand that oftentimes in Scripture, when the Bible uses the word men, it's using it 
in the grammatically generic sense that we all learned when we were in school years ago that it's generically used to speak of mankind, whether it's men or women. But in this particular sense, the godliness of men being men and being godly men to lead their households, to lead their wives, to lead their children in the things of the Lord. Men ought to be the ones that are standing up and saying, uh, folks, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Uh, it shouldn't be the children dragging mom and dad to church. It shouldn't be the wife trying to get them uh, to come to church. The men of God ought to stand up and say, I'm going to be a man of God. And when men of God begin to decline in a society, you can mark it down. That society is in a decline. We are failing in the day that we live in our country because of the failure of godly men to stand up for what is right and what is truthful among God's people. And this this decline that jeopardizes the very society and the morals and the, the, the right and the wrong that a society believes in. It's this lack of godly men and the seasoning effect that it has on a whole society of people that talks of this extreme danger that the psalmist felt was present because of the lack of godliness and the lack of faithful men. And now I want you to notice this. He also pairs godliness and faithfulness. Did you notice that in the first verse? It says, For the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. And we see a pattern here that when godliness declines, faithfulness declines. These are two sides of the same coin. They're tied together. They cannot be divorced. Godliness brings about faithfulness. And by the way, faithfulness will also bring about godliness. And whenever any one of them is suffering, you can rest assured the other is also. When godliness declines, faithfulness declines. When faithfulness declines, godliness will decline. Faithful to the things of the Lord. Faithful to His Word. And so the psalmist is laying out a pretty strong argument for his case, isn't he here? When he cries out to God for help, he's, he's, he knows whereof he's speaking. If these are the symptoms, if these are the, the characteristics of that present day, then by all means, David, you need help from the Lord. The Bible goes on to speak of these men that are not godly, they're not faithful. And it says this about those men, it says they speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. The things that they say are vain to whoever hears them. They, they profit no one. There's a vanity to it. And they speak this everyone to their own neighbor. Uh, they, they do so by uh, speaking uh, frivolously. They speak uh, with foolishness. They speak with falsities and a lying tongue. They speak with false flattery. You know the type of people we're talking about here. That to your face they make you sound like you're the greatest person in the world and to your back they hate you as badly as any man can hate someone. They speak false words of flatter. They lie. They're deceitful. Why? Because there's a lack of godliness in them. There's a lack of faithfulness to them. And by the way, when you see the decline of godliness in the men of God in a society, that society is going to follow after deceit and lying, <coughs> flattery, foolishness, frivolity. And these insincere compliments, these, these flattering lips that it speaks of here, uh, this double heart is one that gives flattery to the face, but then in the 
and, and when you're not there and you're not present, uh, that flattery disappears. They now become very critical. <coughs> Somebody said this, If a man extols me to my face, he only shows me one side of his heart. The other is black with contempt for me or foul with the intent to cheat me. And this is the type of men that ungodliness produces. This is the kind of men that unfaithfulness produces, are men with vanity in their speaking and flattering lips and a double heart. And when society begins to crumble, uh, the hearts of men affect their, their speech, their actions, their temperament, their attitude. All of that is tied into this. We can look around at our society today and we could really cry as the psalmist did, Help, Lord, for the godly man cease it. The faithful fail from among the children of men. Because we're seeing such a decline in what we consider to be a Christian nation. What was, what was considered to be for many, many years and, and decades the last best hope for humanity. A land of freedom where men could come <coughs> and worship God. <coughs> excuse me, worship God freely and openly without fear of retribution. And we're fast losing those liberties. Quickly we're losing those liberties. They're actually getting to the place now where there is legislation being considered that would severely hamper our religious liberties here in the United States of America. And it could very well be that in my lifetime and yours, we will have to make a decision whether we're going to obey God or whether we're going to obey men. I love my country. I want to obey it in every way that I possibly can. But when it goes contrary to what God has commanded me to do, I must make a choice. And that choice needs to be that of the godly man, that of following God's Word. Verse number 3, David then begins to make a pronouncement about these, these ungodly men, these men that are not faithful. And he says this, when they, uh, verse number uh, 4, Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord uh, over us? Or, I'm sorry, verse number 3. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things. So notice that the flattering lips and the tongues uh, that speak proud things are also paired together. Just like the ungodly man and the uh, faithless man were paired together, we find that there's a progression here as well. That the flattering lips will flatter other people. But then there's also proud things that speak well of themselves. And one usually follows the other. They're kind of intertwined once again. In both cases, whether they're lips of flattery or whether they're lips of pride, in both cases they are vain. They're empty. There's no value to them. Somebody said this, Strange it is that the easy yoke of the Lord should so gall the shoulders of the proud. While the iron bands of Satan, they bind about themselves as chains of honor. They boastfully cry unto God, Who is Lord over us? And hear not the hollow voice of the evil one who cries from the infernal lake, I am your Lord. And rightly faithful do ye serve me. Alas, poor fools. Their pride and glory shall be cut off like a fading flower. 
Charles Spurgeon, I think, is the one who said that phrase. And he said, I don't understand it. Why, the easy yoke of the Lord. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And yet men shun that. They hate that. They feel like they're under bondage if they go that route. Not realizing that Satan is crying out, I'm your Lord, you serve me, you're bound to me. And they, they, they embrace that as a, as a badge of honor, as something that they long for. And Charles Spurgeon called them fools, for their, their pride and their glory shall be cut off like a fading flower. And this is what David is speaking of here in verse number 3. He said, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said with our tongue we shall... Or we will prevail our lip with our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? They're, de- they're denying God. They, they don't want to have any uh, input from God. I was, I'll, I'll share that. I may share that in the, the, the 11 o'clock hour. There's, I was watching something this week, and it was really heartbreaking to watch. It was a Jewish man and was talking about how that he did not believe that Jesus was any kind of uh, even a good prophet. Uh, he didn't believe he was God, didn't believe he was a prophet. He just thought he was just a regular, ordinary man. And, uh, you know, the Bible teaches that one of these days, every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's going to cut them off. No matter what their pride is, no matter what their haughtiness is, no matter what the, the vain things that they say are, no matter how much they deny that they have to answer to God, one day they will answer to Him. And those lips are going to be silenced. And the proud heart is going to be abased. In verse 5, God begins to speak. He says, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. I wrote this note down as a passing note, reading that God is often moved to action by the prayers of His people. That's not always the case. There's times that He'll tarry. You may pray for something and God may not choose to bring immediate relief to it. But there are many times that God will move. It doesn't mean that we command God around. There are men of uh, they'll stand in pulpits today around the country and tell their congregations that God cannot do anything unless you give Him authority to do so. That is never the case. God can do as God wants to do because He's God. He does not need our permission. He does not need our authority. He does not need us to even give Him a suggestion. He knows the need of our heart even before we've prayed to Him. But just as the cry of a baby will stir a heart of a parent, oftentimes the cry of God's people will stir Him to action. And I want you to notice that he is going to come and be the defender of this. He says, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. When he hears the sighing of the needy. And it's interesting that sometimes you get to the place where even praying is difficult, isn't it? It gets so wearisome along the way, all you can do sometimes is just give a spiritual sigh. And yet that's enough for the Lord. That in and of itself can become a cry to God, the fact that we need help. God's promise to keep them in safety 
from him that puffeth at him. And this safety is going to be not just when we get to heaven, but oftentimes will include things here on earth. There have been a lot of times that men have been martyred, persecuted, gone through trials for the name of the Lord Jesus and to be faithful to Him, and God has not brought relief from that. But there are times that He also has brought relief from that. There are times that He brings that deliverance this side of heaven. And certainly we know that when we get to heaven, that deliverance will be there, no matter what. Verse number 6, the psalmist says, The words of the Lord are pure words. These things that he says, he says that the Lord said in verse number 5, These words are pure words, as silver tried. Notice this, I love the way this is worded. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now they used to have uh, these... these uh, smelting pots where they would take the silver and they would put it in there and apply intense heat to them. Uh, they were actually called crucibles. Wasn't that interesting? They put them in these crucibles and they would heat them white hot and get them as hot as they possibly could. And when they would, all of the impurities of that silver, that alloy and uh, any impurities that it would have, any of the minerals and things that might have been embedded in it, would come to the surface and they would scrape it off as dross and they would throw it and discard it as worthless. And the, 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 the most that you could purify the silver to where it was just as pure as it could be, there were no imperfections in it, it was the purest form that it could, was one that had been purified over and over and over and over again. And I want you to notice what the psalmist says here. He says, the words of the Lord are pure words. That's interesting. Because he's going to speak about them being tried. But it's difficult to purify something that's already pure, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Now think about this for a minute. <clears throat> God's Word stands in stark contrast to the vain words of the ungodly. Mainly because the ungodly's words are vain, they're, they're frivolous, and God's words are pure, and they're certain. God's Word has pass through the furnace, not of purity, but of trying. There was no need for the Word of God to be purified any further because it was already pure. But it has been tried. And notice the way it says here, the words of the Lord are, purify, are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of fire. Purified seven times. You find nothing in there that speaks of dross of God's Word needing to be filtered out. But you find this pure Word, even though it had been through this purifying process multiple times, seven according to the psalmist, it was simply tried. It's been tried by a lot of things, hasn't it, down through the years. It's been tried by uh, those that would bring persecution to those that would hold to the Scriptures. It's been tried by people uh, that, that were well-learned men in the, in the ancient languages. And literary criticism has been brought to bear against our Bible, and yet it still stands. And it stands infallible. And it stands pure. And it stands preserved and inspired. It's had philosophers that have come against it and spoken of great philosophical philosophic arguments against it, and yet it stands. Science has come against the Bible 
<coughs> and tried to disprove it. And yet, over and over again, we find that the Bible still stands. And in all of these trials and all of these testings down through the ages, it has lost nothing because it was already pure. It just stood the fire. It went through the purifying effects time after time after time after time and was found to be already pure. Somebody said this, the experience of saints has tried the words of God in every conceivable manner. But not a single doctrine, not a single promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. What God's words are, the words of His children should be. God's Word needed no purification. It was already pure. And we hold to the fact that it has not only been pure, but it is preserved pure. We hold in our hands what we call the King James Version of Scripture. And it is vitally, vitally important for us to have purity of doctrine, for us to have the purity of the promises of God, that we have a Word of God that is absolutely infallible, inerrant, 100% supernaturally preserved without error, and inspired by God Himself. And the psalmist speaks of this in verse 7. You say, well, he's referring to the words in verse 6, isn't he? <laughs> Let me ask you this. Is God perfect? Are there then any words that he speaks that are needing to be purified? Not any of them. The psalmist is just stating a fact here. It may be about this specific thing. But since we know that God Himself is perfect, it holds true through all of His Scripture. In all of the trying, it has lost nothing. In verse number 7, the Bible says this. Not only is He going to keep these words that, that He's purified, He says, but thou shalt keep them, not only speaking of His words, but also speaking of these that were the needy, those were the, that were the poor, considered uh, to be the poor in verse 5, those that he was going to preserve from verse 5. It says, And thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. In, in the history of Christianity, from the time of Calvary until present day, conservative figures have given the idea that there have been 70 million Christians martyred for their faith in 2,000 years. That's a lot. And those are conservative numbers. I've heard as much as 130 million. I'm giving you the best case scenario. One thing I know for a certainty is that in 2018 they found that there were over 90,000 Martyrs for Christ in the year 2017 around the world. 90,000. And when they did the study and they had actual numbers and could put actual, actual faces and names to the count around the world, the observation was this in that study, that the number is growing year by year. Now take this into account that for 2,000 years people have held to the faith of God's Word, to the purity of its doctrine. 
And people have come to them and said, you're going to deny it or we're going to kill you. And they said, we cannot and will not deny it. Folks, if that's not a testimony and evidence of the purity of God's Word, the fact that He's going to preserve His Word and these people from that generation on, and you look around the world today and there are still millions of people who profess the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Satan has not stamped them out. Voltaire, who was a tremendous infidel, hated God, hated God's Word. He made the statement during his lifetime that within just a few years that God's Word would be annihilated from the earth. A hundred years later, they took and bought the home of Voltaire and turned it into a print shop for Bibles. I think God sat in heaven that day and began to chuckle. He put to silence some flattering lips that day, didn't he? And this is what he speaks of here. That God is going to silence these men. And he's going to preserve his word and his people from that generation forever. And then in verse 8, the psalmist explains what brought them to this point. The wicked walk on every side. It's kind of what he said in verse 1, isn't it? The godly man ceaseth, the, fail, the faithful fail from among the children of men. In verse 8 he says, The wicked walk on every side, everywhere I turn, everywhere I look. It seems like only wickedness. And I'm going to tell you, it's frustrating in the day we live. I can't hardly walk down the street and talk to ten people on the street and not find most all of them, if not all of them, that do not believe in God, do not trust in God, do not care for God. And it's easy for us to go and say, the wicked walk on every side. But I want you to notice what has brought this to pass in that society. He says the wicked walk on every side when the vilest of men are what? Exalted. When sin loses its sinfulness. When it begins to get the allure of pleasure and fun and excitement to the point that even God's people are deceived by it then you're going to find yourself in a society that is given to ungodliness and unfaithfulness like David found himself in. And David felt that this was a point of extreme danger for the people of God. When the society got this bad, he cried out and said, Help, Lord. Help, Lord. Since an exalted sinner encourages sin, then the answer to it is to not exalt the sinner. Because just as much as exalting the sinner will bring sin, exalting the Redeemer will result in righteousness. It's time for God's people to pick up the banner that has fallen, that has been trod underfoot, the banner of the Word of God, and say this is truth, and this is right, 
And let's use the terminology that David did. This is pure. It's pure. Because it's pure, I can trust it. Because it's pure, I can live my life by it. Because it's pure, it can make a difference in the hearts of men. And rather than exalting the sinner, let's exalt the Savior. Instead of allowing sin to become more rampant, let's, let's raise up the banner of righteousness and holiness once again. David cries out to God with a complaining faith, and perhaps it's time for you and I to do the same. Help, Lord. We're living in such a day. Lord, help us. Help us. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're so thankful for your word. And, Lord, as we read Scripture, it first oftentimes will bring conviction to 